instead of saying like, why will this not work? It's why will this work? What needs to happen for it to take off? And if it takes off, how big can it be? So here we are, episode nine of the best money I ever spent presented by Rally. This week, Nathan Baugh, someone who's gonna be new to a lot of you, but he's amassed a huge following in a really short period of time with his incredibly unique Twitter posts about the intersection of sports and business and his newsletter, World Builders, which covers the past, present, and future of storytelling. He's also an author with a book on the way that delves into a new world of fiction in the same vein as some of the great fantasy storytellers from our era. Think J.K. Rowling, Tolkien. I don't wanna give too much away, but he's done all of this at a really young age and with an incredibly well-formed view on the future of brands and content. And for anyone who's building an audience or investing in their own content, this is a must listen. He was also fresh off a flight from Monaco, so we cover some good Formula One stuff and talk about the reason why everyone's all of a sudden a diehard fan, all that and much more. As always, as a disclaimer, nothing on this episode should be considered financial advice. You shouldn't make any decision financial, investment, trading, or otherwise based on any of the information presented here without undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with an investment advisor. And with that, episode nine of the best money I ever spent presented by Rally with your favorite Twitter account's favorite Twitter account, Mr. Nathan Ball. Nathan, what's up, my friend? Thank you for uh, for spending some time on this uh, on an early morning with us. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, happy to be here, Rob. Uh, fan of fan of yours, been a rally. Awesome, and I likewise too. I think that you know we'll jump into it, and I'll I'll preface this by saying, you know, I don't want to call you a writer or or a sports business analyst or like an expert storyteller or any one thing, because to me, you're someone who's this mix of sort of everything that works when it comes to crafting, like that really shareable narrative and, and also someone who's really in front of this movement that's taking the most important stories and kind of unwrapping them for a really big audience. But how would you title yourself? How would you describe yourself when somebody asks? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it's a combination of different things. First and foremost, just like creator slash writer. Those are the things that I love to do and take a lot of pride in. And I took... I wrote a book. It took about two years and it'll one day be published and spent hours, countless hours, like studying the very best writers at what they do and how they go about their craft. Um, and I think that'll pay off pretty, uh, pretty great long-term, but right now it's, it's paying off well on Twitter and it's been uh, really a catalyst for me learning how to write, learning how to share stories, break down content. Um, so yeah, writer, creator. So, so for anyone that doesn't know, you probably you probably seen some of Nathan's threads at a certain point, or you definitely sort of come across content that he created first that got reappropriated by somebody else and kind of you know, told a little bit differently as part of a retweet or something else. But that said, the journey to today for you, having gone from the equivalent of zero to you know hundreds of thousands of followers pretty quickly, when you graduated, that was before. And correct me if I'm wrong here, that was before content was really a career. And I guess consulting careers are like the mountaintop for a lot of really smart sort of multidisciplinary people. And you did it, but now you've kind of stepped away from that. And and what was the thought process coming out of school? What did you actually want to do? And how did that match up to today? I had no idea what I wanted to do. So, that's, the best, that's the best answer because that's usually true for yeah. a lot of people. 
Yeah, I, I think it's true. And, and if you don't know it, the best thing to do is just like frankly say it. And you go try a bunch of different things. So for me, I went, graduated 2019, went straight into consulting, was there for about two years, learned a ton, so many great mentors, seeing like all the finances behind big business like that. Um, was pretty fascinating for somebody out of school and I got way more responsibility than I probably should have. Um, and then it got to the point where I, uh, I kind of felt like I had tapped out what I, what I could learn and was looking at, do I stay here for another 10 years or not? And then at the same time, uh, my wife also in consulting had an opportunity to go abroad to get her MBA. That's something that she was just like very, very passionate about. And I had started to see a little bit of kind of traction on Twitter through newsletters um, and just talking to some different brands about different opportunities out in the space. And I thought it was a, a great time to really double down and, and do that. So we decided to actually move to Madrid from Austin, Texas. So pretty big jump. My Spanish was not as good as I thought it was. You find out really quickly that when you think you know Spanish, if you go actually live in the culture, you don't. Exactly. You start talking to somebody, they reply in English, and you're like, yeah. oh, shit, that's not <laughs> they good. They got me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's, that's a bit of, a bit of my background, how I got started uh, down this like, creator journey, I would say. Well, what was the first hit for you on Twitter? You've had a lot of sort of viral threads. You've had a lot of conversation that's sort of taken itself off Twitter and become part of like the casual banter. What was the first one where you were like, this has the potential to turn into to a real storytelling mechanism, but more so a career and support what I really want to be doing as a writer? That's a great question. I, I'll give a shout out. No free shout outs, but I'll, I'll shout out Joe Pompliano. Shout out to Joe Pomp, a, a, a friend and someone who's been really supportive of a lot of other creators too. Great dude. And supported me when I had like 600 followers i think just because he like liked the content and knows that it's very hard to put it out there so he like would comment or retweet on a couple of different things and it people liked them they generally took off and i was like okay like there is something here and then just getting to know so many different people in the space so many great people who are just super supportive um and then sold my first like newsletter advertisement spot and i was like well okay brands will actually pay to get in front of this audience that i built that was pretty eye-opening, getting a bunch of DMs from brands. Hey, wait, how do you think about storytelling? How do you think about world building from a brand's perspective? And it was like, all right, there's there's definitely something here. Yeah, that's the there's always like that moment where you need kind of somebody who kind of has like a domain expertise, but more so has that massive following to do that quick little amplification. And then the people that didn't necessarily know it existed realize there's something there and it becomes like that nice sort of, you know, a nice flywheel that turns into and makes it really you need that pat on the back sometimes too from like the the gatekeepers a little bit you know what i mean 100 percent, yeah it's a it's social proof that's it that's it and i mean that's a that's a sort of a, a a good conversation point for kind of where it turns into the newsletter where it turns into world builders and, and kind of the the narrative piece of the longer form and some of the fiction stuff you're working on some of the stuff that's not necessarily just the sports and sports business but in your mind kind of what makes good content. I think we talk a lot at Rally internally. Everybody at our company is kind of like a content creator and everybody is, is really good and creative in their own right and is making their own things outside of just what we work on on a day to day. What hits is so much harder to figure out. The things that are going to be like the aha, like that one took off. And I talk about it with our producer, Will, all the time. One of the smartest kids I know, but he's really academic. And some of the academic stuff, some of the stuff that's really digging deep doesn't necessarily hit the same way, like one quick line that's polarizing might. 
So what's the stuff nowadays in your mind that makes good content? And do you know before it happens that it's going to be the hit? Or do you realize it as it's sort of starting to build up? I I have a pretty good sense of what's going to hit and what's not going to. A lot of it comes down to timing. For example, I did a, a breakdown of kind of Formula One and how they use Drive to Survive to really propel their brand specifically in the United States. Uh, and I had worked on that piece for a while and I knew it was really good, but to like maximize on like the viral potential of it, I waited until the first day of the Formula One season, launched it morning of the first race. I think that combined with like it just being like a really solid piece was going to go viral. And that got, I think, nine million people saw that, um, which is wild to think about, first of all. Um, but there's definitely like once you put out, once you put in the work for like 52 weeks straight, putting out hmm. two to three pieces of content per week, you start to get a good sense of what's going to connect and what's not. Certainly yeah. some things have surprised me, but for the most part, a good idea. And any, anyone who hasn't seen that that F1 thread, it's, I believe it's pinned to your Twitter right now. You got to go to Nathan's Twitter and check it out. It really is, it encapsulates all the reasoning behind this sort of epic explosion of popularity of the sport too and relates it back to the to the series. But you were just you were just in Monaco. Am I wrong in saying that? <laughs> no, this is true. I uh, popped over from Madrid. It's actually free to go on Friday for qualifying. Fun fact: If you awesome. ever I did not know that, if anyone wants to go, if anyone's ever in Monaco for qualifying, he's got to go. But that said, like I think F one is this is this very sort of seminal moment and kind of like I think there was and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. If you disagree, I want to hear it. But it feels like what were once considered these fringe sports, and we talked a little bit about lacrosse before this this conversation started. But when you think about things like women's soccer as well, which has a bunch of new teams and new leagues springing up, you think about F1, which has always been this sort of global phenomenon, but at the same time, you know, what happened in Miami and what's happening in the US and what happened with the series and all these things that make it this this moment that everybody wants to be a part of right now. You had a really good quote in that tweet thread. Um, the, formula, the former CEO of Formula One said, I'd rather get the 70-year-old guy with plenty of cash so there's no point in trying to reach these kids, but it di it didn't work. The kids love it now, and I'm talking like an old man. But what the exact opposite happened? What's the catalyst for any of these sports to take off the way they have? Is there a formula, no pun intended, or is there an element of luck when something catches fire and this new young tech empathetic audience really starts to have this affinity for these sports and makes it part of their identity? How is that happening so often now? Uh so I think uh, let's look at Formula One as the example, right? So in the U.S. specifically, it wasn't huge. Like, it was pretty popular. But in Europe, it was already just massive sport. Everybody talks about it. There's like 10 or 15 different European Grand Prix, and they go there. Huge deal. In the U.S., though, you got NASCAR, you got IndyCar, you got Formula One. And it was kind of this fight to see, and it's a smaller and smaller audience who's interested in auto racing each year. So I think what Formula One did is they took a step back and said, how do we, instead of fighting for this U.S. market of people interested in auto racing, how do we instead expand this market to more and more people like you're talking about these younger folks? So they went after a completely new market segment. They did that through like the Netflix partnership, right? Um, but I think that's what's so powerful about content as a whole is you can reach new audiences than your sport or your brand has ever reached before. 
Premier Lacrosse League, another great example, partnership with NBC. They get to tap into that distribution. Folks who haven't seen lacrosse just come across it because they're strong on their channels. They see NBC, they're like, oh, this is cool. They become fans. Uh, it's a great way to just expand your market. Yeah, and those are like, they're all these kind of fast-paced sports too. And lacrosse is a good example. Obviously, Formula One, soccer, which obviously has these four or five different offshoots in the U.S. now. But there's not that stoppers. It's not the feel of baseball. And this is not to knock baseball at all. But that said, it doesn't have the same, the, it's different audiences and different generations that, that respect it differently. That pace, I feel like, has turned into like so the storytelling that comes with it too has gotten so robust and it's got such a natural like Netflix series. Formula One feels so natural at this point. What's the next one you think that hits? Is there anything right now you're looking at that like, you know, in New York everyone talks about like pickleball right now? That's potentially a thing. Or uh, like, like pickleball's huge in Texas. There you go. So is that, do you feel like that has a chance now to really jump because you have these networks like Major League Lacrosse and kind of what you said where they pick up. What might be looked at as a niche sport, but once it's on television or it gets that push from behind, it becomes a thing. You know, what would be next if you saw something right now? I think the commonality across all those is like a super engaged, like hyperactive community that does it currently. Like people who love lacrosse, like love lacrosse and will for their entire lives. People who love pickleball, they talk about it nonstop. Mm -hmm. um, so I think pickleball is a great example. Uh, I think golf is actually a good one. We've seen that really skyrocket in popularity the last two or three years as well. Um, and they're about to launch a Netflix series too. So yeah, I'd say pickleball from like a really niche sport. And then if you're talking about sports are already bigger, that thing would get bigger, I'd say golf. Gotcha, makes sense. Golf has like that that generational kind of storytelling too. And I think that relates a little bit to like the brands associated with it. You see like, you know, it's a different feeling to see Phil Mickelson with like, you know, KPMG is a sponsor and like Rolex and Mercedes and these, the, the logos on all their shirts are, they feel different, you know? And that's, that goes to in my mind, like that brand storytelling too, which you've talked a lot about and kind of the founders behind the faces of some of the biggest ones. You've, you've had this series where it's the Disney's and the, and the Apple's and you talk about Steve Jobs and Walt Disney and these larger than life kind of figures who are geniuses and kind of these creative deities to a lot of people, myself included at this point. But there does always seem to be this underlying like asshole element to it, to a certain degree, to the stories. And I say that with massive respect for those two guys in particular, but for a lot of others who came before and after. But do you think there's any correlation with these generational creative brand success stories and kind of being a dick at times and having that polarizing kind of look? Or do you think it's coincidence that a lot of these big brands have those stories behind them just by the numbers? No, I, I think you're, I think you're onto something there. The, the whole idea is like, you really don't want people to be neutral about your brand. Like you want people to either love you or hate you. Um, and I think, you know, being controversial, like sharing like your true thoughts kind of leads to that like polarization at times, but it also leads to people who just are like huge advocates for the brand. Like you see that with Elon, like people, on Twitter, it's either like you love the dude or you think he's the worst thing to happen in the last 10 years. Hmm. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence at all. That's a, that's a good way to put it. But, you know, you, you, you're on Twitter enough to see it, like to see like the brands that do well and the people that do well. And that polarization is usually what works. You need as many people, you don't want to get crazy ratio, but you want to have as many people like hating it as, as loving it. That's what kind of turns it into like a, a real viral moment. When people think of brand Twitter, I think a lot of times they think of like Wendy's or um, or like what Ryanair did a couple of weeks ago where like they just destroy some random 
crypto bro and it's like takedown Twitter, you know? But brand voice is so different than the regular creator voice. Someone like you has a way better chance of selling me on a brand than the brand themselves. What do you think brands have to do on Twitter in particular to do it right and not have it just turn into like a customer service channel or that snarky agency voice? Is there a lane that brands can do it well without having to be that? I think so. Uh, I think the best brands actually operate as meme accounts in a way. Hmm. Um, they know who their target audience is. They know what that person cares about. They know what that person thinks is funny. And they'll just consistently take like three, four, five points, frame those in different ways, see what works and put it out there. Um, I think if you like take a step back from like just Twitter and look at like brands who like world build and storytell super well, you can look at Rally as an example. Like your co-founder, chief product officer at Rally and you're investing your time into a podcast. You guys are what, like eight, nine, 10 episodes deep right now? This is it, episode nine, we're on it right yeah. now. Yeah, so two, three years from now, you got you know, 150, 180 podcasts in the backlog. That is a ridiculously powerful asset for the company, right? And you're gonna have people who, who kind of find that backlog and then they become interested in rally because of this podcast. Like, Oh, like this is cool. Like fractional investing. Like, what is that? Let's look into it. That's interesting. They find your guys newsletter. Then they're like, okay, even more and more like likelihood of becoming you know, a customer of the platform because of this own media that you guys have like very naturally and organically invested in over time. And I, I think that's the right approach for brands like on Twitter and then on these other platforms too. You think it's, it, is, it a, is it a numbers game to a certain degree? You got to keep putting the content out, knowing that it's going to affect somebody the right way and the way you intended it to, and that could kind of snowball? Or you think there's like a place to, to pick and choose your spots? Because I know you're not somebody who's ever going to like fight somebody on Twitter. I know that I know you're clever enough to like smoke somebody if you really wanted to, but you, that's not your brand. You know what I mean? I can't, I can't picture you doing it. But does it ever get to a point that you're like, this is the right moment. I got to break, I got to, I got to break the fourth wall right now and really do something aggressive because I have an opportunity to do it. Yeah. Find your like inner Kevin Durant or Joel Embiid <laughs> yeah, or whatever. Find uh, a KD Burner account and just jump on yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, there's definitely, there's, I think there's, there's times and it's, I, I think what gets most creators is, is it's very, very difficult to put out quality content consistently and do that. So when anybody kind of like, I think, disrespects that or thinks that it's easy to do what like myself and others do on on these platforms then that's where it's like okay maybe i i need to clap back here <laughs> it makes sense so on that note one of the most polarizing sort of pieces and most po polarizing corners of twitter is like nft twitter and you have this this it's impossible to not talk about it in any conversation you've talked about it a bit You've written threads about some of the sports-related DAOs and some of the elements of, of NFTs that have kind of broken into business and broken into sports and tech differently than they have with the creator economy. But, you know, the PFP projects and some of the, the very basic projects that are done by relatively unknown creators before they launch, a lot of them done ridiculously well. And we're talking 100 million, 200 million, you know, printed over a short period of time in transactions. At the same time, Top Shot had its moment. I think some of the DAOs, LinksDAO, and a few others have been successful enough where, like, you know, Callaway partnership with LinksDAO, which is, is over the last 24 hours, just got news released. There's a few others doing interesting stuff. The floor prices don't necessarily match some of the bigger projects. They don't necessarily fluctuate or have the same appeal 
when it's an athlete or when it's somebody who's associated with sports, how do, how do the smaller creators compete with these athletes and do better? Is there a world where an athlete or a company like Autographed or a Tom Brady or somebody with a massive following can also have massive success in that space, in the NFT space? Or do you think that's for you know, the Gary V's and the Yuga Labs and the Cool Cats and the projects that are really based around a creator, not an athlete? Uh, I think it depends. Like, I'd say a year ago, it was much easier to have like monetary success in, in Web3 NFT world than it is now. Um, I think that's actually a good, a good change because it means that currently you have to put in much more work to the actual brand, the actual storytelling that goes into these different projects. And that's why you're seeing like V Friends or World of Women or these other ones that are still doing well, even in a bit of a downturn for the market is because they've taken the time to build those partnerships. The roadmap actually has some, some substance to it. It's not just like, oh, we're building an online game. Um, and I think athletes that lean into that aspect of, of Web3 and really engage with those fans and figure out how to make these projects valuable to people, they'll have success just like any creator would. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's this, it's this thing that I've thought I've talked about a lot with a lot of creators and with, with, you know, people who run agencies and there's this idea that athletes, especially these huge athletes, they have followings, but not necessarily community. So to say, and community and following are very different when you have 20 million followers or you have, you know, 30 million followers, that's a great number on paper. But can you liberate dollars from those those people if it's not something directly related to your sport and it's like your T-shirt line or your NFT? Sometimes it's not the same thing. And I think a lot of people don't realize that just having millions of followers doesn't necessarily mean you'll do better than the one creator with 10,000 followers who are dying to find out what the next thing that that person does is and spend money on it. You know? Yes. Yes. And, and it's also it's kind of that hamster wheel game of like in NFTs, like there's so much liquidity that it becomes, what have you done for me lately? Mm -hmm. um, and the communities that understand like this is a long-term game are going to be the ones, you know, the prices will likely rise and go forward, but that'll only be like 1% of these things. And other 99% where it's like very much short-term games are, you know, probably kind of go down in price. I mean, yeah. it's kind of, kind of that simple. Yeah, it makes sense. So you touched on it a bit uh, earlier in the conversation, but you worked on the book. You've been working on the book. The book is complete right now. Am I wrong in saying that? Yeah, like two drafts in. So Perfect. as complete as a, as a draft can be. Once you get to a second draft, it feels like at that point you can kind of, can you kind of sit back a little bit and look at it more sort of analytically page by page? Or is it something where the narrative content is still, yeah, you can like really take the 30,000 foot view on it at this point and start having a real mental conversation with yourself about what's next? Yeah, so for for me, it's a, it's a good question. I like to either like zoom super far in and like look at it like paragraph by paragraph, or go way out and look at it as um, kind of the whole structure of the story of like uh, I like the hero's journey. I think it's a really good like mental model for it, where you have three different acts. Um, so the first like rewrite definitely goes through like that big picture story. You want to nail all that and feel really good about it. And before you get into like the line by line, paragraph by paragraph edits, because otherwise like you're just going to create a lot more work for yourself. No, nah, man, you're, you're wise beyond your years, dude. I'm telling you, like there was a, when I was, I have a couple, I have a couple generations on you basically. But when I was younger and I was thinking like, I really would love to write a book or one of those things. 
you're taught immediately like go with that three act narrative content and think about it as like, you know, protagonist, antagonist. But now we're at a point that everything is so, it feels so disposable and the stories have to be so tight and a little bit frantic for them to really make sense. It's good to see somebody thinking about it differently than Twitter too, because you're, without giving too much away, it is, this book is a departure from from what you're known for on Twitter right now. It's the same sort of rich storytelling, but at the same time, it's a little bit different. What could you say about the about the process and where it landed without giving too much away and not saying too much about what the actual content looks like right now? So I'm a huge dork when it comes to like fantasy fiction type books. So I literally spent like, I think the best way to learn something is just to like take some like multiple people's writing that you enjoy and just go line by line into it. This is something that Sam Parr talks about. Um, he actually has a course like called Copy That where it takes different copywriting thing, thing, like letters from Ogilvy, from Ben Franklin, and a couple yeah. other like great writers. And you just copy what they writ, wrote and it helps like, 10x your writing super fast. And I did that a couple of years ago with like George R. R. Martin, like J.K. Uh, Rowling, a couple others who are just like incredible, incredible authors. Um, and that taught me more about writing than I think anything else has. So it's, it's definitely like a fantasy fiction style book, uh, pretty long. And yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason building an audience is it's a mad distribution. It will always be an advantage. But it's also, it's, it's what we talked about too. It's one thing to have a lot of people that follow you. It's another to have real engagement with that community where they know your style, they understand what you're doing. They want to take that journey with you, you know? So it's, it's something that will translate to your audience, whether it's sports, business, fantasy, or anything in between, it feels like it'll translate, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a hope. We'll, we'll see how it plays out. Excited, excited for that. So typically we, we end with a couple of quick questions and these are sort of, you know, we didn't prep before this, so I'm throwing them at you. Feel free to answer them any way that you feel necessary, but I'll give you the first one. It's kind of, what's the, the favorite story that you've told so far this year in 2022? I won't say the Formula One one because we talked about that. I think um, I did a real deep dive into Steve Jobs. I think he is one of the best creators, entrepreneurs of all time. That's not like um, an uncommon opinion, but doing a deep dive into like how he actually worked and operated was, was pretty amazing. So I specifically looked at a bunch of his different product launches from the iPod to that uh, iPhone to, you know, all the different ones and zoomed in on that iPhone one. And it was pretty fascinating to see across them, very similar storytelling structure at each step of the way. And I think it's something that's like super repeatable, but he freaking mastered it. And, and one thing that I thought was super cool coming out of that was his first stint at Apple. He was not a good storyteller. Then he leaves Apple, acquires Pixar, learns how to tell stories from some of the best in the business. And then his second stint at Apple, you see a bunch of those lessons from Pixar applied to Apple to incredible success. I, I thought that was super cool. Yeah, that was a killer thread too, and, and, and a really good story. Found it wound up in the newsletter too, and it's one of those things that it's it's easy to sort of be like, yeah, Steve Jobs, genius, did a lot of great storytelling, a lot of great stuff. People don't even realize that that literally got thrown out of Apple. A lot of people didn't realize that until recently, and had to come back to make it the success story that it is now. But he was looked at as as the enemy of of success for Apple for a pretty extended period until that second act, for sure. On that same note, the next question. So this is like similar. 
but not so much. Like the biggest miss in your mind in terms of an athlete or a tech product or an event that you were convinced would fail, but it took off. What was your biggest miss so far over the course of your career? Interesting. This is uh, this is something that I'm like actively working on. Actually, is being like super optimistic about the future. Hmm. I uh, I heard I heard this concept from a, a guy, Packy McCormick. You've probably seen. Yeah, not boring, not boring. Packy. Yeah, yeah, great. If anybody listening hasn't read Not Boring, it's one of the best newsletters out there. Um, he's like basically saying like he's super optimistic about the future, and of course, sometimes you're going to be wrong. So that's actually something that I'm trying to like actively take on, like looking at web three, looking at creator economy, looking at whatever it might be being like, okay, instead of saying like, why will this not work? It's why will this work? What needs to happen for it to take off? And if it takes off, how big can it be? Um, so that's a bit of a non-answer to your question. That was the best answer. Are you kidding me, dude? That was a because that was a good way. First off, it was a, a really quick answer, but that was a good way to cover all bases. It's impossible for that to be wrong. It's about the future. We always think about the future here. It's the same way. Absolutely. Then the last one, and this relates to the this is really the the antithesis or the moment that we created this platform around. We have creators, they've invested in themselves. They've sort of taken a road that was less travel, but it's turning into success. What's the best money that you've ever spent? Discretionary investment, otherwise, the one that's sort of been the most fulfilling. When, when we moved to Spain, I quit my job in consulting. I took a course um, by a guy, who, uh, Sahil Bloom, who's now become like a really good friend of mine, uh, called Audience Building, and it was great. And kind of developed that relationship, mm -hmm. met so many people through that like platform and course. So I think to me that was uh, over the last year or so, like to get to where I'm at now, that was that was a big deal. One thing I learned in this interview, I'll say, is that I looked at you before this as somebody who was sort of just uh, a natural at storytelling and somebody who's young and gets it and puts himself in the right conversations. I've learned that there's been a lot of sort of education for you. You've been a student of the game a lot of different ways, taking a lot of different courses and taking a lot of sort of um, cues from others, which I think is a super, super important point for anybody who's young as a creator starting something new, is that you don't have to know everything yourself. You can learn from others and you can take those courses and sort of be a student of the game before you jump into it with two feet. Yeah, pretty way to put it, bet on yourself. That's the only way to do it, man. Nathan, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show and thank you for your time. I know you've been traveling all over the world. So to get a half hour of your time is super important for us. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Appreciate you. And that was episode nine of The Best Money I Ever Spent presented by Rally. Definitely give Nathan a follow. He's NathanBall27 on Twitter, and his newsletter is on worldbuilders.ai. He's become a favorite in the rally office, and his content on sports business in particular is incredibly unique. He's given Alpha out nonstop, and it was good to hear that he gave props to some of the people in network who've been doing a lot of content for, for a really long time, building audience, guys like Joe Pompliano and Packy McCormick. Some incredible storytellers all over the internet right now who are putting out free content all day, every day. Nathan is definitely one of them. Finally, as a reminder, do not listen to me or anyone for investment advice. Always do your own research and be sure to read the disclaimer on rallyroad.com before making any investment on Rally. All investments involve risk. This is no different. And past performance is never an indication of future performance. I'm Rob Petrozo. I'll be back next week with a new episode that crosses over between sneakers, culture, investing, and everything in between. Until then, you can find us on rallyroad.com. That's rallyrd.com. At rally on Instagram. 
and at onrallyrd on Twitter. Be sure to subscribe here so you don't miss anything in between. Until next week, 